and oh, does it feel so good to be back. If you haven't been here before, this is called Who's This Podcast For? A podcast about nothing and everything and all of it. My name is Nate Nathaniel Nathan Smart. Call me what you want. And uh, this is the return of a century. This is it. We are back. It's been, (laughs) honestly, it's only been like 14 days since the last time this, you will hear my voice on an episode, which will go up today, right immediately after this recording. But it feels like forever because I've done a lot. By done a lot, I mean I've driven like two and a half hours away and uh, proceeded to stay in the mountains with my family, my extended family, obviously, wifey's family which is my family, for about 10 days, or 10 or 11 days in a cabin in the Smoky Mountains up in uh, Pigeon Forge slash Gatlinburg, Tennessee. What a wonderful time. We do it every year. I explained this in the last few episodes, I think, but I just want to talk about that experience really quick. But before we get to that, um, it was a wonderful trip. Um, I have a few other things to talk about. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to try to stretch these episodes out that long anymore. If they make it to an hour plus, so be it. That's fine. That's great. If it's only 40 minutes, if I'm giving everything I've got and that's all I got to talk about, then I'm happy with it. You know, I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to try to stretch it because I think that's how you that's how you start to bring the product productivity level of your thing down. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather be here 35 minutes. You get everything I got and then some. Instead of an hour and ten trying to find things to talk about. That's just me. I've never been that type of person. And I feel like I was doing that before I left. And I don't want to be that person. So I'm not going to. What you will get is what you will get. And I think you will enjoy it. And I know I will. And I've missed this. And I've missed you guys. Whoever's listening, I've missed you. <laughs> and I'm so glad to be back. But today, we only have a few things to talk about. Haven't been to the theaters in a minute. Um, hopefully that will change next week because again this week looks like it's going to be a dud uh, for things that I like you might love a lot but I'm you know, not interested in much coming out right now but next week we have Nope so um, it won't be ready for the episode next Wednesday but it'll be ready for that next week you know the week after that because I will go see it as soon as it drops come out July 22nd I think it's a Friday I'm seeing it that 23rd probably that Saturday might see it twice if I love it enough. Might go back that Sunday and see it again. By that Wednesday, I'll be ready to talk about it. Don't you worry about that. But this week, probably not because I don't think anything's coming out. But we do have some things to talk about. I bought four Criterions. We talked about the Criterion Collection before on here. Um, I bought four movies. I've seen two movies at home. And uh, I'll talk to you about my trip and and why I love traveling and why I want to see more of this great world we're in. And that's what we got. So, Let's get into it. Like I said, I just got back from Gatlinburg um, Saturday, last Saturday. At the time of recording, this is Wednesday. So it's been a few days home. Um, And we go every year around the same time. We try to put it around a certain person's special birthday, which is on July the 4th, believe it or not. It is. And that's a special day for him, you know, more than the holiday itself. Um, But we do it every year. We try to do it every year. And it's always great. It's always great. It was great this year. It was wonderful. Just being around those people who I love dearly. Having seen, having not seen some of them for December, January, February, March, April, May, June, for about seven months because we hosted Thanksgiving and they came up here to Chattanooga. So that was nice and lovely. 
We haven't seen them in seven months. Some of them we haven't seen in a year because some didn't make it to Thanksgiving. So it was the year since the last cabin that we've seen them. And it's always great. And, and, and we missed out on a few people who we def- desperately wanted to see, but we'll see them again soon, I'm, I'm sure. And I just think it was great, man. It was it was wonderful. What I'll tell people is if you have mounds close to you, do what you can to rent a cabin. Get a group together, split it eight, nine, ten ways, and rent a cabin. Because I think it's I think it's invaluable how much fun and how lovely that is, especially if you're high up in the mountains. And this was significant because this was my first year driving. Um I obviously we split the driving with my with my lady. Um we would when we were farther away, we would split it. So if it was six hours, I drive three, she drive three. And then we were there, she usually drive around the most. And I didn't feel right about that. Um, you know, I feel like the man should be driving. So this year I was like, I'm gonna drive the whole time. So I drove all the way there, which wasn't that long because we're closer now since we've been in Tennessee. But two and a half hours, it was decent. But then when we got there, I've never driven through the mountains before. And I'll tell you a story. When we got there, we were trying to find a cabin. We got the location, put in the GPS, and it didn't take us all the way there. It took us to a four-way intersection in the mountains. And we had to figure it out ourselves. Mind you, this is my first time driving in the mountains. I'm nervous. Well, high up, my wife's <laughs> ears are popping because uh, I guess as she goes up in elevation, her ears pop. Um. I got music on, had to turn it down because I need to concentrate. I'm driving very slowly through these winding roads. There are other cars passing us. Um, we don't know where the house is. And we finally find it. And after that, I was like, man, I feel like I can run through a brick wall. If, if I just navigated these mountains like this, not knowing where I'm going. And, and mind you, I'm a person. I need to know everything about where I'm driving. I need to know where we're going, when we're leaving, and where we're going after that. I don't like to drive aimlessly, especially in a place I'm not known i don't know like i'm from vicksburg mississippi i'll drive around there with no gps on because i know those streets um even starkville mississippi which is where i went to school i'll drive around there too but when i used to visit montgomery alabama nope i'm i need to know where things are but then in chattanooga i definitely need to know where things are and definitely in the mountains i need to know where things are and that was an experience that was the first day trying to find it and check this out our place we were the only house on this road it's a windy steep elevated road and it's hard to drive back down and turn around especially when a lot of cars get there and when everybody was there it was 11 of us this year i think 11 or 13 it was like four or five vehicles hard to get up you have to back down this road when i tell you there's no rail there's nothing stopping you from going over there you just have to back straight down now luckily our car has the little like thing to where like you don't even have to look back it uh, as soon as you put it in reverse it shows the little thing on, on the display and you can just back straight out and look there but still first time driving in the mountains and i'm backing down this road knowing if i mess up we on the side of a ditch even worse we're flying down this mountain terrified but i did it every single day my wife never drove she only drove once it was just to move the car for somebody else to get out. That's all she did because she had the key. And, you know, she was right there. It was fine. Anytime we went to Gatlinburg, anytime we went anywhere, I was driving. And was it nerve-wracking? Yeah, because I might have had a bit of anxiety. I might have been like, man, this is rough. But I wanted to do it. I wanted to prove it to her, prove it to myself, and I did that. I'm proud of myself, and that makes driving easier. Um, a lot of people might be like, oh, drive all the time. Yeah. Um. I don't know when it got with me that driving was rough. Maybe a few years ago I had hit a deer 
and told her our car. And I feel like ever since then, I was like, I don't know about this driving thing. But I think I finally got over it. I think I'm good now. And driving through those mountains was part of it. That made the trip kind of memorable. Because like I said, it was my first time driving up there. And we've been going there. We only missed one year since 2018. That was 2019. So 2018, 2020, 2021, and then this year. That's four years out of five we've been going. And I haven't driven around Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, Seaverville, Townsend, Maryville, none of that area where we frequent every year. And I finally did it all the days, anytime we were driving. On the strip uh, to Gatlinburg, which is about 30 minutes from Pigeon Forge, about 15, 20, 25, somewhere in there. We stayed in Pigeon Forge, but we were going to Gatlinburg. That's where all the festivities were and that's where all the activity is. So driving over there, parking, y'all get real anxious about some of that stuff, and it was fine. It was it was not a bad thing at all. So I'm very grateful for that. I loved it dearly. I loved the nights of just playing Monopoly with all the all, all the younger kids, all the like. We got me and Jasmine, my brother Zach, um, which is her brother, but he's my brother. Um, his lady Natasha, who we absolutely adore, and then the younger girls who were like 13, 15, 17, us just sitting around playing Monopoly. And then one night, Jasmine's mother, Kim, and her significant other, her husband, Groves. So we're just all of us sitting around the table playing Monopoly, having a great time. People just dropping out one by one by one. And me and Jazz take over the whole thing. But one of the girls, Jocelyn, who's like 15, she held her ground, stayed in there. And it was just fun. We were battling. <laughs> I'm just reminiscing on it now. I don't think I ever got really got a chance to um until now going over it in my mind because you know, as soon as we got back we had to we were start washing clothes and you know just try to rest and relax before the week started. We had two days basically or a day and a half. And now I'm kinda of sitting back and thinking about all the great things about it. And um it was just wonderful, man. Beautiful cabin too. Um going to Anakista for the first time. Riding the sky lift up, which is terrifying and exhilarating. It's not going fast at all, but it's taking you up to this like this like uh kind of like grouping of places like up in this mountain. And the only way to get there is to ride a sky lift. You gotta ride it back down when you leave. And then we, we walked through the forest on these suspended bridges and they were creaky, but it was fun and also exhilarating. Remind me of last year, we also took this skyline up to this other place. And this bridge was so freaking high, man. I tell you, I was terrified. It was long and high. It was like, it was, I don't even remember what the place is called, but this year we went to Anakisa. And those bridges weren't as bad. But just a beautiful view, beautiful mountains. I, I, I love it. I live here, I live in the mountains my entire life. The only one that's like potentially fighting the mountains in my mind is the desert, like Arizona. Uh, which I never really had an interest in living in the desert until I watched the Succession episode one, I think episode season one, episode seven, Austerlitz. I think that's what I'm going to look it up. And I know I'm right because I'm, it's the best show ever. We're going to do an episode on Succession at some point. Don't you worry. We will do an episode on Succession at some point. Um, this was season one. I bet it's episode seven. No, that's okay. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Yep, Austerlitz, July 15, 2018. In an effort to fix his public image, Logan agrees to a family therapy session at Connor's New Mexico Ranch. That ranch, that changed my whole thing. I watched, we watched that episode, me and Jasmine, in like 2019, we first getting into the show. And I was like, I didn't know that you could live in this. It looked like a Spanish war fort. 
It looked like something out of the Mexican American War that they would have held up in and been shooting down at the uh at the Americans. It looks amazing. And I was like that desert landscape, that house, also that dry heat. It's not like humid heat back here in the south where you know it's 93 but it feels like 103. No, if it's 93 out there it's a 93. Because there's no humidity. It's dry heat, which is what I prefer because once you get in the um once you get into shade with dry heat, it cools down precipitously. You can get in the shade when it's humid. You still gonna feel hot, muggy, sticky, nasty. Like it's just like thick thickness in the air you can't breathe. So that's the only thing potentially stopping me from wanting to stay in the mountains. If it wasn't for my newfound love of like Adobe style houses in, in like New Mexico and Mexico and kind of in deserts, you know, you kind of see them in certain parts of California, all of that in like the southwest part of this country. I will be in the mountains my entire life. I want to go to Aspen. I'm not going to necessarily ski because I'm not trying to break my neck, but I'll stay in a lodge cabin and just look out and watch everybody else. I think that's beautiful. Absolutely love the mountains. And we want to go back maybe this year, next year when it's snowing. So we want to go back in like December. Uh, Gallenberg is notorious for getting some snow. They usually get snow every year, maybe January. Somewhere just when it's cold. We just want to go back. We always go when it's hot and that's great in the summertime. When they go see the snow, on the mountains and you know be bundled up and driving around that's that's a dream we're gonna do that very soon but yeah i recommend going to gallenberg going to the smoky mountains whenever you can it's one of the best mountain ranges it might be the best mountain range i haven't experienced a lot of them i'll be honest like the uh rockies i haven't experienced like i said in colorado but i would love to but something about the smoky mountains man then when that smoke gets to going and it just kind of cascades over those mountains there is nothing like it I'll, i'll tell you that and Again, absolutely wonderful time. I need the time every year with those people who I didn't know in 2018. <laughs> and I remember going on that first trip on a whim. She asked me, do you want to go with my family to Gallenberg for a week? And I was like, uh, I'll give you some time. To, I'll, I'll give you a few days. I'll think about it. And I finally got back to it. I, I was going to say no. And then I was like, you know what? I'll do it. I step outside my comfort zone. Changed my life. I had never been outside of Mississippi like that. You know, I've gone to Florida, gone to actually that that's actually a lot because I've been in New York, uh, which we talked about in the last episode, I think, or one of the last few episodes. But, but like that, like I guess, like as an adult, no supervision, just us, just you know, winging it, and it was way more people then that were going, so that was very anxious because I didn't know, uh, I knew of these people, I didn't know a lot of them, I had only met them like once. But they, I fell in love with that entire family, and it showed me I want a big family like that, um, with a bunch of kids and grandkids and everything, and the siblings, and I just want the whole thing. And I want to be like eighty years old, sitting in a rocking chair and looking around and seeing all my family just talking and laughing. That's my dream now, and that's because of Gallenberg, Tennessee, believe it or not, and Jasmine. But you know, that's a given. So, <laughs> you know, I ain't gonna give her too much credit. She's she already gets plenty. Don't you worry about her. So that was my recap of my trip to Gallenberg. Um, like I said, I have seen two movies since I've been back. Because, you know, who's this podcast for? This podcast is primarily movies. You know, we dibble and dabble and everything. But you know what we're going back to. You know, it's our bread and butter. And I had to start with one. Speaking of Gallenberg, real quick, because it, it's it's a transition into this next topic, this movie I watched. I um, 
I was uh, I was in Gatlinburg, and there's this movie I had been wanting to see because I would watch this YouTube channel. I don't the, the channel is a long name. I'll read it to you because I, I do want to give them props for what they do. I was just gonna tell you what the actual thing is I'll be watching, but no, I'll give you the name. It's called Cinefix IGN Movies and TV. Cinefix dash IGN Movies and TV. It's a movie channel. IGN is home for informational and entertaining movie and TV show content made by experts for the modern day cinephile. Subscribe for regular deep dives and top ten lists as well as series staples like things you didn't know. What's the difference of brilliant moments? Now, I love their top ten lists and their brilliant moments, and the rest is cool. But I go, I go there for the top ten list, and one of them, actually, believe it or not, I found these. I found this group. I found this YouTube channel uh, in Gallenberg. It wasn't this year. I think it was in twenty twenty one, and that kind of really opened me up to them. So for a year now, I've been really getting into their stuff. And they talked about a movie once on one list. I think it was for best performances for Elizabeth Taylor. The movie called "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf." I watched is. Made in 1966, directed Mike Nichols, who also did The Graduate in 67, I believe. You think they have his movies right there, but we can't find. Yeah, 1967. So you know he's he's established. So you directed this movie starring Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Richard Burton, George Siegel, and Sandy Dennis. Uh, kind of a four-hander, a two-hander really, but a four-hander. Four main characters, not much else. A lot of dialogue. Um, that's an understatement. The dialogue is, it's, I'll say that for a minute. But here's the thing I've been trying to find this movie for like a year now, and I haven't. It's never been on any streaming, and I'm not quick to rent stuff. I'll watch it first um, and then decide if you rent it because I really don't like spending money on stuff, which is going to be hypocritical to what I say later on about my criterions because I haven't seen any of those but um willing to take a risk and i kind of know what i'm gonna like and not like now sometimes you surprise yourself you'll be like oh i didn't think i liked that and i did or i really thought i'm gonna like that and i did like a few parts but not the whole thing so you can kind of screw yourself on that stuff but i don't think it's uh i don't think it's that bad and and, and i you know i i think it's necessary to watch stuff first before you buy the physical copy but here's the point I've been looking for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for a long time, and I, we finally got the guy on the Like the second day, I just happened to look it up because I was on HBO Max, and it was there. And I was like, "It's on HBO Max." I'm watching this as soon as I get home, and I was thinking about showing like the kids that, and I was like, "I don't know, a 1966 black and white movie. Would I have wanted to see that when the files 15 or 13 or 17? No, this is new for me to actually get excited about something like that. So I decided to wait, and I watch it myself. And I watched it two days ago. Uh, I'll give you a brief synopsis real quick before we get into it. Um, History professor George and his boozy wife, Martha, return late one Saturday night from a cocktail party at the home of the college president, Martha's father. Martha announces that she invited another couple, newly appointed instructor Nick and his timid wife, Honey, over for a nightcap. When the younger couple arrived, the night erupts into a no-holds-bar tour and a marital angst and verbal tirades. That last part is apropos. This movie makes you feel. And they're like, well, you know, I try to start this off, but like, I don't want to just tell you like, oh, I thought it was good, thought it was bad. How did it make me feel? It made me feel um, exhilarated for one because of how well it's crafted and how the dialogue is speaking. And it really made me want to just write. That's the feeling I got like. I need to practice writing more because whoever wrote this 
and I actually need to give them that credit. <laughs> I can't just say whoever wrote this. That's wrong. Uh, you gotta always give them, give them their, uh, you gotta give them their credit. Actually, so let me see. Writer, screenplay by Ernest Lehman. He did it. He did his thing. Um, I felt exhilarated because I, uh, I'm weary for a great writing. I just wanna, I'm longing for great writing and. A lot of modern movies, you just don't get it as much. You know, there's no shade to anybody, but it's it's kind of. But writing today just isn't as solid as it was back then. I don't know what it's, for whatever reason. I feel like exposition now kind of bodies any kind of script or most scripts. And back then, they knew that less is more. You can get it through visual storytelling or you can get it through uh, just more interesting ways. I just feel like a lot of movies today are very uh, timid and shy in how they go about the exposition uh phoning it in and making it very obvious and this movie did not do that it didn't have much anyway so maybe that's that's the point but i just think it's storytelling how how this movie's wrote by ernest lemon was amazing but let me tell you how i felt i felt exhilarating for one because of the writing but also felt very uh drained and that's not a bad thing you watch this movie by the end you should feel drained you should feel tired of all four of these characters but also sympathetic for all four of these characters and when I say you should, I don't mean like if you don't feel that way, you're wrong. But what I felt watching this movie and by the end, people that I like, oh, I'm no, I'm not going to like her. By the end, I didn't like every I didn't like anybody, but also felt bad for everybody in this movie. You know, a lot of people say, like, how can I get into this TV show or movie when there are no redeemable characters? That's something they say about like Uncut Gems. How can I watch this movie when I can't even root for the main character? You can root for the main character. He's flawed, how I write in there, and Uncut Gems is flawed, which is a perfect movie, by the way. He's flawed, but we all are. It doesn't necessarily make him a bad person. Um, it just makes him more realistic. And again, you don't have to like him. He does a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't like. But I think by the end of the movie, you're supposed to kind of reconcile with your feelings of, okay, this guy isn't the best guy in the world, but he has redeeming qualities and I can tell he's, he's a genuine person. He might just have a problem that he never got fixed and probably never will get fixed. Hint, hint. Um, so going back to who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, all four of these people, you don't feel bad for them at the end. Even when a lot of things are exposed in this movie, a lot of the, the characters take each other on a wild ride of emotions. It goes from anger to sadness, to fury, to, sympathetic to heartfelt to sexually aroused to uh want to kill each other and everything in between in the scope of a night it's one night and i I love movies that take place in like one day in one setting and this place this movie has like two settings and i think that's enough uh i think that works wonders um I, i love movies like that feels very pressurized um but yeah I felt um, a real connection to these people just being flawed and also, um, you know, being manipulative and being quick to anger. And I know we're not supposed to be those things. And I'm not saying that right. I don't think these people are good necessarily, but I do think they're real. And that makes me connect more than like, if they're good, I don't need the every man who's going to, Oh, he's plucky, but he's got a heart of gold and he's going to, I don't care about that. 
I want somebody realistic who kind of mirrors me in my life because I know I'm not perfect. And I know I have things I need to work on. And seeing that on screen. Also, here's the thing. Here's the bad thing I hate about, like, uh, diversity and stuff like that. I saw so much in these characters in myself, and all of them were, like, middle-aged or late 20s, early 30s white people in the 60s. And I'm a (laughs) middle, almost 26-year-old black guy in the South. Like, it's not even the same. It's not even the same living experience, but we've experienced life the same way and that we're all flawed. And so I can take stuff from them that they probably could never take from me and vice versa. All right. You don't have to be a black man to take something from somebody else just because I'm a black man. I can take things from anybody if they're well written and they actually make sense and they're realistic because we all have things in our life that we can pull from and be like, oh, you go through the same thing, even though we live two completely different lives. That's interesting. Small world, huh? It's coming out what I felt here. Um, how this narrative unfolds, which is not much of a narrative, is more of a conversation, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people say that's the most uncinematic way of telling a story. But if you do it well, again, going back to the writing, if it's done well, it can feel as cinematic as anything else. How this onion just kind of unfolds and unravels. And you see a side of these people you don't see at the beginning and by the end, you see a whole different person with new added context. And you're like, wow, maybe I didn't give you a fair chance or maybe I gave you too much credit. I just think that's done so well. And these people become very nasty to each other who they're supposed to love. But by the end, the love is still there. And it just kind of shows you like, um, like I said, being, being a flawed human doesn't make you a bad human. And it doesn't mean you love somebody any less if you do things, bad things to them. Now I'm not saying do bad things to people. I think I'm just saying, we're all complex in our own way and to give people maybe a little bit more empathy for what they're going through. They might not have it all figured out yet, but it doesn't mean they're doing it on purpose. I just think that's probably the, the answer to that. Uh, beautiful black and white cinematography. I will look up the cinematographer's name because I do think this stuff is important. And I think you need to give people their credit. Haskell Wexler did a beautiful job with this kind of chiaroscuro. Uh, just this very brooding, dark black and white, but it's popping and vibrant. Um, and it lends itself so much to that storytelling. Um, into movies in general, I think more movies should be in black and white. I know it's probably kind of trite now. People see it as like, oh, it's a, you're just trying to look pretentious. And no, it just, it, it looks beautiful. And a lot of people don't know how to like movies well now. So it would do a lot to not have to worry about all those lighting just do black and white it's simpler but it can also be as effective if not more and i love this movie i gave this movie a five out of five on the letterbox and a star um it's one of those movies i implore everybody to see it i haven't seen this movie that i'm comparing it to but it probably will remind me of my dinner with andre from what i've seen from that movie just a two-hander with two guys just talking about their experiences which i want to see soon i probably will see soon by uh lewis mail um, but yeah, I love this movie. Elizabeth Taylor was fantastic. Richard Burton was fantastic. See, I heard a lot about Elizabeth Taylor going into this movie. Everybody was actually Don Siegel and uh, I think Sandy Dennis. Uh, all of them were great, but Richard Burton was, he's like a mad scientist of the energy he's exuding in this movie. And I don't think I've ever seen him in anything or unless I just didn't know. And I think the only people that won, this movie was nominated for like every Oscar, I think. It was nominated for every Oscar that year. I think it won two best supporting actress and best actress for Elizabeth Taylor and Sandy Dennis 
Uh, but Richard Burton, man, he he kind of stole this movie a little bit. His unveil in the third act of his like kind of shrewding, scheming plan to get back at Elizabeth Taylor for something she did uh, early in the movie. It just he's he's menacing, but then he's kind of like you kind of your heart breaks for him because you can tell that, like I said, they're both flawed and they probably shouldn't be together. But at the same time, they should be because who else is going to deal with these two people but these two people? And they know the best way to deal with these two people. I just think it works. It works wonders, and um, Richard Burton was fantastic. Elizabeth Taylor was amazing. She's like the catalyst for this movie, and it's my first Elizabeth Taylor movie, and, and I kind of want to just dive into her filmography, but I think that she was acting against type on this one. People were like, how is this young, beautiful woman going to play this frumpy, old, 50-year-old woman? She did it like it felt natural. It looked real. I was like, man, it, you you are this person, even though you're not, but um yeah man absolutely love this movie phenomenal speaking of black and white we'll stay right there because the next movie i watched the next day was the artist from 2011 now well before i get anything michelle hazanovicious is the director um written by michelle hazanovicious hazanovicious cinematography by guillaume schiffman um yeah i'll read you a little bit of it if i can get back to it in the 1920s actor george valentine played by jean dujardin is a bona fide matinee idol with many adoring fans while working on his latest film george finds himself falling in love with an ingenue named peppy miller berenice bejo and what's more it seems peppy feels the same way but george is reluctant to cheat on his wife with the beautiful young actors the growing popularity of sound and movies further separates the potential lovers as George's career began to fade when Peppy star rises. So this movie has a bit of a um, controversial past. It won Best Picture in at the 2012 Oscars for the 2011 slate. And a lot of people was like, that's okay because this is a decent movie enough. And this is their opinion, not mine. They said that this is a decent movie enough, but should it be winning the Academy Award? Probably not. And that's interesting to me because this movie kind of has no legacy. It came out, it won the best Oscar, and it went away. And now anytime somebody mentions the 2012 Oscars, they mentioned that it won Best Picture and the Best Actor for the Artist. Uh, and that was it. They say it's not a bad movie, it's not a great movie, and they move on the nomination the films with the most nominations that year were hugo with 11 the artist with 10 Moneyball with six war horse and you know others um so here's my opinion on it having not seen many movies from this year especially in the best academy award nominations um i absolutely adored this movie let me be honest with you Oh, here are the nominees real quick for Best Picture. The Help, Hugo, Tree of Life, War Horse, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Descendants, and The Artist. Hugo is the one I want to see the most. I've seen The Help. It's a, it's, it's a decent movie. I haven't seen anything else from this list. The Tree of Life is interesting because that's Terrence Malick. And yeah, I've heard a lot about that one. Moneyball, a lot of people love, but eh, you know, I'm getting into baseball now, but I don't really want to watch a baseball movie. Anyway, I adore this movie. I enjoyed this movie. 
I'm going to start with my rating because I think it's important. I gave it a five on Letterboxd and a star. I originally gave it a four and a half because I was reading Letterboxd reviews and a lot of people were like, it's a nice movie, you know, not a lot in way of narrative, not a lot of storytelling. It feels kind of stretched out to fit, but it didn't really have enough legs in this story. But it's a nice movie. It looks well. It's well made, well performed. Um, here's my thing with that. Now, there is a difference between a movie uh, being simple and simplistic, but also having enough legs to stretch for an entire feature length and a movie being simple, too simple to where it actually is done saying what it needs to say in like 30, 45 minutes. I didn't think that was the case in this. I thought the narrative was very well made. It was very well structured and how it went along. It justified its hour and 40 minute runtime, which isn't that long anyway. But a lot of people seem to think that this movie didn't have much to say or do and that it was just kind of meandering, which is why it didn't have that high of a scoring letterbox anyway. It was like a middle and like a 3.2. I gave it a 5. Because I think the simplicity of the story, you got a guy in the 20s who's a big star, meets a girl, she becomes a big star. As this transition from silent film to talkies is happening, she becomes a big star in talkies. He falters. And because of, and and they both kind of like each other, I think that's enough for a feature length, and it obviously was. Movie won best picture and best actor. I wish I was watching movies like I am now at the time. It was just so engulfed in this because I would have loved to see what people were saying about this. And I know I probably would disagree because in hindsight, this movie has disappeared. Like I said, nobody even mentions this movie until they bring up the Oscar and they say the artist won. Okay, and then they move on. I can't believe it. I watched this movie and it feels like something out of the past. And that's obviously what it's supposed to be because it's said 1927 through 1932. It's supposed to fill up that time. But it's a legit silent film. There's only talking at the end. I don't think that's a spoiler. There's only words at the end. The rest of the movie is through sound. Now, if I have one critique, the sound did sound a bit derivative at times, which would have maybe dropped it to a four and a half. But I was a bit generous with it because I love the music in this movie. Some of it did sound derivative that they could have maybe switched it up in a few scenes. One scene in particular, I was like, this music does not replicate or match this uh, tone of this scene. This scene is kind of sad. Maybe it's a little bit upbeat. I didn't mark it off that much because the, the music did have a bit of an undertone of sadness. It, but anyway, I think that's more like nitpicking than anything. But the this movie is all silent. And I just... I wonder what audiences in 2011, because it came out late 2011, early 2012, I think, in some places. So late 2011 here in the States, I wonder what people, when they went to the theater and was like, okay, here's this movie about the artist. Okay, let's watch it. And the movie didn't do what, it took $15 million to make, and it made $133.4 million worldwide. I think it made $44 million here and like 80-something, you know, elsewhere. $44 million here on $15 million, they, that's decent. But worldwide, $130 million? That's great. That movie wouldn't do that today. Ten years later, 2012 to 2022. You know how much that would be? That You know how much money that would make? It wouldn't make any because it'd be on streaming. <laughs> it'd be a streaming movie, you know? It would have dropped on Netflix. Maybe with a quick theatrical release of like a month in New York and L.A. And we would all watch it on Netflix, and people would have said it was boring. And then we got nominated for like 10 Oscars, and people would have said, nobody was even watching this kind of movie. But backtrack 10 years, 
Movie made $130 million worldwide and was nominated for like 10 Oscars and won Best Actor and Best Picture and probably some other ones that I don't know of. That's 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 the difference. <laughs> and if it did come out on Thieves today, it probably would have flopped. So now, with that being said, let's talk about what it made me feel. It made me feel exuberance for movie making. It made me realize, oh yeah, this is why I want to do this. You give one of those movies every once in a while. I got it with Uncut Gems in 2019. I was like, oh yeah, I this is why I want to do this. In those days when you feel like, man, this is like a pipe dream. Like you, you only have you have to be out there in uh, in Hollywood in L.A. to do this. Otherwise, you can't do it, and you get discouraged and be like, why am I wasting money on buying all this stuff? And then I watch a movie like Uncut Gems, be like, oh, that's why. Or I watch Licorice Pizza from last year. Oh, that's why. Or I watch The Artist. I'm like, oh, that's why to replicate a movie from this time another criticism a lot of people say which i just thought about what they said was it's almost attempting a silent film without actually having any of the silent film you know i guess kind of exuberance or charisma and i thought it was very charismatic for a movie in 2012 to be a silent film basically all the way into like the last two minutes and to only really tell a story through title cards and music that movie has so much charisma driven from it. It feels like it's of that time period. They could have dropped that back then, and I bet it would have did well. It would have fit right in with all the other greats. It feels like Citizen Kane at some times, at some point. Citizen Kane isn't even a silent film, but that's what I got from it, just with certain scenes and how it was shot and framed, and with certain narrative choices. How um, George Valentine suffers, kind of like how um, Charles Foster Kane suffers in Citizen Kane by the end. You know, it's almost, he's, he's not almost, he's a recluse, kind of have the same thing happen here. So you can see it pulling from all of those things, pulling from that history of that Hollywood and that, which you, what most would consider the golden era, quote unquote. I think it had a lot of legs to stand on, especially in terms of charisma. This movie is bursting at the scenes with movie making, with the magic of it. And that's what I felt. I felt like I want to make a movie. I want to run through a brick wall and tell a story because i think that like you don't get many of those type of movies and i just can't believe it got kind of just like eh, meh reviews from people just like eh. you know it's nice and it's, it's it's pretty funny it's very funny actually but it's like eh, you know didn't do much for me i'd rather watch moneyball who's saying that <laughs> you want a moneyball to win over this and hugo is about another silent film star jordan millier well a filmmaker from that time that's scorsese's um you know, like ode to silent film, like his love letters to silent film in that in that era. About a kid who meets George Melies, who made a trip to the moon in like nineteen oh two or something like that, you know? And that's considered lesser Scorsese, but I wanna see that too. I haven't seen it. And I bet I'm gonna appreciate it more. I appreciate After Hours from Scorsese. Nobody talks about that. That's one of his best movies. And Color of Money and Raging Bull is his best movie. You know, it's not always about the good fellas and stuff. He's only made like four of them for you marvel people but anyway the artist man um the performances are wonderful jean jardine or whatever however you say his name the the george valentine character he's amazing berenice bedro think how you say her name she's amazing as peppy the ingenue and john goodman is in this movie in a silent film and he's great you know as the like studio head who's overseeing the changing of the times from the silence to the talkies who he has dynamite performances it's a 
well-written movies to have no words but you know writing isn't just dialogue it's also how you uh, script out this movie and the narrative and the form and the structure and the scenes in that instance i thought it was wonderful great cinematography is beautiful another beautiful black and white movie would you well go figure i just you know i love this movie and i and the feeling i got it watching it was like wow what a time for one i'm sure it wasn't like that for people like me but you know you live in these movies you stay in these movies just you know take it for what it is suspend your disbelief i love wrestling you got to suspend your disbelief sometimes but i was like wow what a time for movie making and also what a time for movies just what an art form what a genre genre what a medium the best medium i think ever because it gives you everything even with no words they told such a moving story with just music the actors faces and their acting and that was it and the structure of the scenes and the cinematography that's it that's all you needed you didn't even need a bunch of words and it moved me that's when, that's the feeling i felt moved i felt heartfelt i felt giddy i felt happy as you know as a uh, heartwarming the movie is in that era a lot of movies were kind of corny you'd say today but it i think it worked on me maybe i just like that kind of feeling from that time but and i'm also getting a silent film so that was a good one i think that's the first one people should watch if they want to get into silent films i didn't start with that one but that is like my second or third but i want to watch passion of the joan of Arc. i think that this is a good gateway to that which is a much more serious silent film but um yeah man I, I appreciate this movie so much and i hope a lot of you do too if you go watch it and please go watch it i, I think you i think you'd appreciate it as well it's on tubi right now <laughs> you're probably like, what the hell is tubi yeah i felt that way too like three months ago all right before we wrap this up because those are my two movie reviews I told you guys I bought some Criterions. If you don't know what Criterion is, Criterion Collection is a series of movies curated by a bunch of people. Um, and the movies in them basically are the, what you call it, the backbone of cinema, or they are pushing cinema forward, basically. Any movie that gets into the Criterion Collection are meant to be there because they're pushing cinema forward. I'll read you that little thing. Discover important classic and contemporary cinema from around the world. Browse our continuing series of Blu-ray and DVD editions featuring award-winning. Oh, it cut off on me. I'm going to try to get there real quick. Uh, yeah, I don't know where it is. Um, but I'll read you something else. Since 1994, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, from Laserdisc to DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, Ultra HD to streaming, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker will want to see it. In state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. That's the mission of the Criterion Collection. And they had a sale on Barnes & Noble this month, which I knew I was going to take advantage of. I found out about it while I was in Gallenberg, and I like, as soon as I get home, I'm buying them because they're 50% off right now through the month of July for, through Barnes & Noble, Criterion Collection. Uh, not on their site. You got to go to Barnes & Noble for the sale. And it ends July 31st, I believe, or July 30th, whatever day of this month ends. I'm not even sure because I never know which day ends in 30 and which day ends in 31. So this one is 31. 
And my month has 31. I don't know, this must be a leap year or something. Anyway, so I bought four of them. Ran me a pretty penny, but they were half off. Usually they're about $40, but half off that 20 so I bought four. Made the, made up the difference, I guess. I'm going to run these through with you, give a little bit on them. Um, mind you, this time, like I told you earlier in the pod, I tried to buy criterions I've seen and I love. This time I want to go in completely blind. Not completely. I know about these movies. I've seen a little bit of these movies and I know what they're about and I know who made them all and stuff like that. So I, I was interested, obviously. I'm not buying anything just on faith because you might hate it. But if I know what a movie is, I'm interested. I just haven't seen it yet. I'll buy it without seeing it first. And that's what I did. That's what I want to do with these. So I did it. Next time I'll probably buy stuff I've seen like Oak Joe by Bong Joon-ho and Uncut Gems again by <laughs> the Safety Brothers. Already on the Blu-ray, but I want the Criterion cover. So I might do that. Might buy Raging Bull by Scorsese. My favorite Scorsese movie. His best, I think. But let's get to these four movies real quick and we'll get out of here. So starting off 1985, we have Brazil. Um, I'll read you a bit. In the dystopian masterpiece Brazil, Jonathan Price plays a daydreaming everyman who finds himself caught in the soul-crushing gears of a nightmarish bureaucracy. This cautionary tale by Terry Gilliam, one of the great films of the 1980s, is going to be esteemed alongside anti-totalitarian works by the likes of George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And in terms of set design, cinematography, music, and effects, Brazil is a non-stop dazzler. Um, I've heard so much about this movie um, that it's pretty funny, but it's also a warning of the future, and it's predicted some things that's happened today. So that's a movie I've always wanted to see. It's never been on streaming, at least not when I was trying to find it. And I just went ahead and bit the bullet and got it. Very excited for that one. If you think that sounds good, you know, check it out. Hopefully, if it gets on a streaming service at some point or go rent it somewhere, you know, I'm not against that either, but it got to be for an important movie. This one is shout out to my brother, Ian Smart. Uh, He's been telling me to watch this for a long time. So I went ahead and bit the bullet. This one is from 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. E2 Mama Tambien by Alfonso Cuaron. Alfonso Cuaron made. Uh, what was the space movie with Sandra Bullock? Gravity, and he made uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, the Harry Potter movie, probably the best one in terms of filmmaking and directing. I will give him that because he's amazing. He made Roma. So, you know, he's big. And I haven't seen this, but Ian stands by it, so I had to buy it. Uh, let's read it here. This smash role comedy from Oscar-winning director Alfonso Cuaron is that rare movie to combine raunchy subject matter and emotional warmth. Gail Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna shot to international stardom as a pair of horny Mexico City teenagers from different classes who, after their girlfriends jet off to Italy for the summer, are bewitched by a gorgeous older Spanish woman, Maribel Verdu. They meet at a wedding. When she agrees to accompany them on a trip to a faraway beach, the three form an increasingly intense and sensual alliance that ultimately strips them both physically and emotionally bare. Shot with elegance and dexterity by the great Emmanuel Lebeski, who did uh, The Revenant, I believe, and Birdman and other stuff. Yutu Mama Tambien is a funny and moving look at human desire. So that's for Ian, basically. I mean, I want to see it. I'm a fan of Alfonso Cuaron. Still need to see Roma. And I think he also did Children of Men. I think he did. That's a big one I probably should have named. And I'm going to look it up now because I like to make sure. All right, don't want to be up here lying, you know. Children of Men, 2006. Um, that was Alfonso Kiddo. Yeah. How much money did that movie make? 
76 million dollars was the budget made 70.5 yeah didn't quite get there did it but yeah e2 mama tom bien uh early 2000s i checked that one out that's all you can get off my back here's the third one it's called all that jazz director bob false 1979 uh the pre the pre gifted director and choreographer bob false turned the camera on his own life for this madly imaginative, self-excoriating musical masterpiece, Rushider gives the performance of his career as Joe Gideon, whose exhausting work schedule morning, mounting a Broadway production by day and editing his latest movie by night, and routine of amphetamines, booze, and sex are putting his health at serious risk. Foss burrows into Gideon's and his own mind, rendering his interior world as phantasmagoric spectacle, a symbol of visionary editing that makes dance come alive on screen as never before, and overflowing with sublime footwork by the likes of Anne Ryan King, Leland Palmer, and Ben Vereen. All that jazz pushes the musical genre to personal depths and virtuosic aesthetic heights. Was never a big fan of musicals until I saw La La Land and I said, hmm, maybe this is for me. I didn't even know Singing in the Rain, which is probably the most famous musical, was about movies. It was about making a movie in 1952. So I got to watch that now too. Might be getting that on Criterion if I love it. But I'm going to watch that first. All that jazz... They said it was like Fellini. It's Fellini-esque with the phantasmagoric kind of atmosphere, something like Amarcore where things, random things are just happening at like eight and a half. They said that this is Bob Foster's eight and a half. And you know how I feel about eight and a half. You know how I feel about Fellini. Probably should get his box set. I'm just going to get all his movies and just go for a while, right? Um, kind of skeptical. I want to watch them first, but I trust Fellini. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Might be my favorite director. And that's just off one movie, so. All that jazz feels right up my wheelhouse. It's about a guy making a movie, uh, very autobiographical, kind of like Eight and a Half was about Fellini. So Bob Foss channeled his inner Fellini, and I'm here to channel him. That's why I had to get All That Jazz. 1979, folks. And I do think this one is streaming on like Tubi, so I could have watched this first, but I didn't. I went ahead and bought it. And last but not least, a famous one. If you know film, it's called Double Indemnity. Directed by Billy Wilder, screenplay by Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, based on a novel by James M. Kane, Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson. This is certified hood classic, 1944. I'll read it for you anyway. Has dialogue ever been more perfectly hard-boiled? Has a femme fatale ever been as deliciously wicked as Barbara Stanwyck? And has 1940s Los Angeles ever looked so seductively sordid? Working with co-writer Raymond Chandler, director Billy Wilder launched himself into the Hollywood A-list with this epitome of film noir fatalism from James M. Cann's pulp novel. When slick salesman Walter Neff, Fred McMurray, walks into the swank home of dissatisfied housewife Phil- Phyllis Dietrichson, Stanwyck, he intends to sell insurance, but he winds up becoming entangled with her in a far more sinister way, featuring scene-stealing, supporting work from Edward G. Robinson and a charged skiro of cinematographer John S. Seitz. Double Indemnity is one of the most entertainingly perverse stories ever told and the standard by which all noir must be measured. This is probably Charles Screw. I think I mentioned it earlier, but this is more of the shadows. Very dark darks and very gray whites that makes that big shadow. That's probably Charles Screw, more film noir than uh, than the artist or who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I digress. We talked about Billy Wilder. We talked about The Apartment in 1960, one of my favorite movies ever, and he did this 16 years before also with some like it hot and other great movies i haven't seen those but you know the apartment is a certified classic and double indemnity double indemnity is by all accounts too i had to buy it 
It's not on anything. I wanted to see it. I want to do more Billy Wilder because he deserves it. He demands a goat and a legend. Let's start with his most famous stuff. I already seen the apartment. Let's go to double indemnity. And I guess at some point something like it hot. Not into the whole men dressing up as women, but I feel like it'll be play for play. Uh as opposed to today where it probably would have gotten over completely different. Would have been much more serious. I feel like it'll be funny because that is a comedy and most people consider something like a hot one of the funniest movies of all time. But we'll start with double indemnity. The black and white, Fred McMurray, got your femme fatale. It's the it's a film noir, film noirs. Probably that in Casablanca, I guess, but this is the one with the wide shadows and everything. Um, yeah, how could I not? And if you notice, I have a 1944, a 1979, a 1985, and a 2001. I wanted to really change up my decades with this hall of criterions. I got one from every different decade you know i was looking at the 50s i was looking at the 60s i was looking at the 90s the two 2010s but i went with the 1940 a 1970 a 1980 and a 2000 and i like my slate all different all with their own personality all allegedly great so that's what i go for i like the finer things in life so brazil e2 mama time the end all that jazz and double indemnity what more can I say? Billy Wilder, Bob Foss, Terry Gilliam, Alfonso Cuaron, masters of their craft. Uh, assuming I haven't seen Terry Gilliam or Bob Foss and stuff, seen Alfonso, seen Billy Wilder, but I'll t- you know, don't take my word for it. You go see for yourself. That's what I'm gonna do. So that's it, man. That's it. I'm so glad y'all are here. I'm so glad to be talking to y'all, man. It's it's been a long time. It feels like I'm I'm gonna keep saying it because it it really does. But um, I'm so happy to be back. I'm so happy to be able to do this again. And we'll be back on our regular schedule program for the foreseeable future. So next Wednesday, you got another one about what I have no idea yet. No idea. But we're gonna figure that out when the time comes. Um, and like I said, I'll be going to see Nope Jordan Peele's next movie in in the coming weeks. Dropping July twenty second, y'all go see that as well, so you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm I don't really do spoilers at all, even if you've seen it, so you ain't gotta worry about that. But uh, yeah, we're gonna get to it, and hopefully I'll watch some more movies on my own time that we can review next week, and who knows what we'll talk about. I might talk about Succession. I might do a Quentin Tarantino ranking. I don't know yet. It's up in the air. We'll figure it out when we get there. But so glad to be back. The return of a century. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening again. See you next time. Peace.